Brilliant. It's really good to be here today. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Simon, and you've seen uh, my three kids, Esther, Toby, and Joel, running around like mad things um, in the, it, over the last few weeks um, as they've really got used to church again after the summer holiday and got the routine back. Um, for those of you who do know me, I just want to say a massive thank you for all your support over the last few months. Um, at some point during today's um, uh, preach, I am going to refer briefly to Rachel, who passed away now about six months ago, um, because that I wanted to have um, a really genuine example of, of what God does and the great things God does. Um, but I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you. you. You have been God's way of getting our family through the last year or so. Our starting point today um, is actually in John's Gospel. It's shortly before Jesus goes to the cross. Before we focus in on the title for today, John's phrase, the spirit of truth, I want to actually start, I've included the context of the surrounding verses here, so there's a bit, a bit more of John than we strictly need, because I really felt a prompt to remind us all of the importance of obedience. Steve spoke on that a couple of weeks ago. He emphasised that we have all been promised the Spirit without measure, but he also reminded us that it depends on our obedience to God or rather, it depends on our lack of it, because that can actually limit the Spirit's work in us. So before we focus in on the Spirit of truth, it's probably worth just resolving in your hearts that you do want to become more obedient to God's promptings. Because then, actually, all of the promises of today, they're valid. God can work in you then. So looking at John, if you love me, said Jesus, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. A bit later, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Last words are traditionally meant to be kind of the most important final message that someone has left to deliver to the people who want to hear from them. Either that or they're meant to be really funny. This scene isn't really the latter. It comes literally hours before history itself is split in two by God himself dying on our behalf on the cross. This is one of those serious sets of last words. Jesus devotes his precious time in that context to doing a couple of things. He prepares his closest followers for his trial and crucifixion. He then goes on to equip the church, kind of for his entire history, until the end of the end times. Really interestingly, he devotes quite a lot of time after this passage to praying, 
He's got a few hours left, so he prays. There's the great high priestly prayer. There's the prayer for all believers. There's prayers for his followers. They then go on a walk so he can get to the garden, so he can pray some more. We should probably learn something from that. But the passage for today, we're we're looking at what he actually says. And what he does with a few hours left in these almost last words, last words of teaching, last words of encouragement, is to repeatedly and explicitly promise the Holy Spirit to his followers. That's the most important message he could possibly give. And the main characteristic of the Holy Spirit, how does he describe the Holy Spirit at this key time? Interestingly, he describes him as the spirit of truth, which essentially is the theme of today. This probably takes us off in the direction of having to think about what is truth. That's something that we could spend a lot of time talking about in today's climate, whether that's in politics, whether that's just in people's opinions of kind of truth being relative and your truth is different to my truth. That's not how anything in the Bible comes across. That's not how God comes across at all. In Titus 1, God is described as the unlying God. He cannot lie. Whereas in Hebrews 6, it's just flat out impossible for God not to tell the truth. More positively, if we jump to Proverbs, different translations put this differently. I I, I prefer the one which says, every word from God is true. You've, You've got one translation up there. The Bible says a lot about truth. The spirit of truth says that truth is important. Most strikingly, just a, chapter, a couple of chapters um, in, the, in the future from where we are, in the great high priestly prayer, Jesus goes this far. He claims that your word is truth when speaking about God the Father. Not just true, but truth itself. I think this is really important. The Bible does not teach that there is this kind of external yardstick of what things are true, which things are false. And if we take God and we kind of try to measure up against this, it turns out that God actually speaks truth. That's not what the Bible says. It goes much further. It says that God, by his very nature and character, he defines what truth is. Things which are true are things which are in agreement with God. You can't go and judge whether God's true or false. He is the definition of truth itself. We will come back to that later but just to say for now god the father is truth the word of god made flesh jesus christ is truth all of his actions when he was on earth all of the words he said were truth the holy spirit is truth and what the holy spirit says is truth it was truth it is truth it will remain truth forever Jesus is promising us the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit of truth. So what exactly is the spirit saying that is so true? At this point, I really want to kind of get a bit of context in here. What I'm saying today is just one of a series of sermons about the Holy Spirit that have been going on for a bit over a month already and will continue going on into the future. Stack that up alongside that Living Free course that's been mentioned in the notices, loads of teaching and application of the Holy Spirit and how he can bring us that freedom. There's a lot going on about the Spirit. If you take all of those together, we're going to see that there are loads of different ways that the Holy Spirit speaks. Um, Just listing a few of them, things like words of knowledge, prophecies, tongues, interpretation of tongues. 
just having an impression from the Holy Spirit, just feeling that guidance, testing of spirits to work out whether they come from God, whether they align with his truth. Things like that are being covered in these few months. I'd really encourage you to go and put that into practice. I had this written down. I've literally got go and put into practice written in here. And then Rob said, there's this chance in the next two weeks to go and get those 25-minute chunks of prayer to apply this wonderful truth. Please take that up. When you've done that, go and get stuck into life groups when they come back and they're running again. And go on a weekly basis or fortnightly basis and go and spend time worshipping, getting into the word, praying, but testing out those spiritual gifts and using them to encourage and build up other people in the church. I really think that application is important. For today, what we're going to be looking at in that wider context is the fact that actually one of the main ways, the main way that the Holy Spirit speaks and continues to speak today, is through the Bible. And that's going to be a large theme of what we're looking at today, but in the context of the fact that he speaks in lots of ways. Where better to start, where better to go to actually show this, than actually getting into some of the Bible. So early on in Acts, just after Jesus has died, and the early church has gathered together, knowing that Jesus has risen, Peter says... The scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago. In the earliest days of the church, the Old Testament was taken to be the spoken and the written word of God. 2 Peter is equally clear. When Peter's writing decades on himself, he says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And writing lots and lots of the New Testament, Paul, who's not there in that first uh, meeting early in Acts, is in complete agreement. He puts it even more boldly. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I think from this, it's clear to see that actually the Bible talks very, very often about the fact that the Holy Spirit has spoken, and his words are recorded in the Bible. What's in the Bible is the words of the Holy Spirit, and they are therefore truth. I do want to make sure I'm getting the balance right between saying the Bible is God's words, but also making clear that we know that God can act in other ways today. Um, I think that balance is so, so important. And I want to get across the fact that it's not really, that phrase isn't a good one, it's not really a balance of spirit versus truth. It's not a, a case of the spirit versus the word. Which one are we going to go with? The, the, the word comes from the spirit. They are one and the same. I found it really useful going back. This, this, this dates me. This is over 20 years old. Um, Dr. Jack Deere, Surprised by the Voice of God. It's still a book I go back to and get so much out of. And for this, it was really useful just literally flipping through the contents page to see this book, which for me was formative in saying the Holy Spirit speaks today in loads of supernatural ways. It's really good to see the structure of the book is... First of all, he speaks through the Bible. Four chapters on how he speaks through the Bible. And then it goes on to, and he speaks in other ways. 
Um, really good example from here, just trying to get that balance across. Um, he recounts a really famous story, which is told in loads of books, about the conversion 1,700-odd years ago of um, the guy who becomes St. Augustine. Writes loads of early kind of co commentaries and theology on, on, on God and lays down what Christians believe for hundreds of years, about 2,000 years nearly, um, after um, he was converted. And it's a really, really great story. Um, his mother prays, sings psalms over him while, he, while, while, while he's in her womb, while he's a baby. Um, she, she prays so much into him. She's a well-known Christian, known for her good deeds, for her words of encouragement to others. But as he grows up, he completely rebels. He turns out to be one of the brightest people the city has ever seen. But he uses his intelligence for completely the wrong reasons. He argues against God. He goes out, he gets drunk, he's involved in debauchery, orgies, all sorts of stuff, and his mother is just worrying so much over him. When he's 19, she's tearing her hair out, but God gives her a dream. And in that dream, she's walking through heaven, hand in hand with her son. And that dream, not a word directly from the Bible, that dream is the encouragement she needs to carry on praying even though the situation seems hopeless. A few years later, things have got even worse. He's become even more famous or infamous for his views, for his actions. And a visiting bishop comes to their city and she manages to get a private audience with him and pours out her heart, explains how bad the situation is. And seeing her tears, the bishop says, Woman... No child with a mother crying those tears isn't going to be saved. And that prophetic word from a bishop gives her the encouragement to keep on praying. He didn't go to the Bible to pull something out. He gave a prophecy. She was encouraged. She kept on praying. And then one day, he's sitting in a garden, and he hears a voice an audible voice, sounds like a child's voice, and it repeatedly says, take and read, take it and read. And he opens a Bible, and he opens it to a part of Romans that says, do not take part in debauchery, do not take part in drunkenness, do not be involved in orgies, and it convicts him immediately. And in his conversion, so much good is done. And ultimately, God did use his written word to show him that specific verse, but he used an audible voice before that. God uses a mixture of ways of speaking. I want to get that balance, though, like I said. And something struck me, again, a fortnight ago when Steve was preaching. You can tell when I started my preparation on this because everything's about that rather than last week when this is mostly written. He spoke about Brother Andrew. And the fact that when Brother Andrew was asked what was the secret formula to his amazing ministry, the reply came, well, I just stay close to Jesus. Is that it, came the reply. I really wanted Steve to embarrass himself at that point by putting on a whole load of silly voices. And it turns out I've got to do that instead. I mean, it's, 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 essentially, it came across as, oh, is that it? But that's not the only response that we could have. Some people might be confused, best confused voice. It, is, that, is that it? But actually, the correct response is that you've just found out 
an incredible, it's not quite a secret, it's kind of, someone's pointed out, out the obvious, and you've just realised, you're kind of kicking yourself, oh, is that it? I've got, that's fantastic. That should be the response to that. And I think the same range of responses apply here, where we're talking about how we hear from the Holy Spirit, how this Spirit of Truth speaks to us. You might be sat there thinking, We're in a series on the Holy Spirit. We get the Bible every week. We're in a series on the Holy Spirit. I was expecting instructions for how I can get a quick fix to fix my spiritual life. I wanted to know how I get to hear directly from God every day. And you're just telling me that I can open the Bible. I know about the Bible. Bible's been around for years. Tell me something new. That's, you know, what are you doing? The Bible, is that it? And the answer actually is no. There is more than that. But there's a massive problem with the question. There's a massive problem with the attitude. What do you mean, is that it? Just looking at some of the stuff behind us at the moment, this is an errant document, completely perfect, completely true. It's the word of God himself. It was written by prophets who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is described as the very breath of God. It's therefore useful for your life of service to the King of Kings. It helps you serve him better. It's useful for training in righteousness, which means that God's going to use it to transform you and make you fit to be in heaven with him forever. And it equips you, not just a bit, not just a bit, but which equips you thoroughly. Not just for some works, the old one here and there, but for every good work. No, there is more. The Spirit works and speaks in other ways other than the Bible. But the Bible is an amazing way that he does speak. The Bible is foundational. God, in his sovereignty, can use other methods. He can take someone who is not opening his word on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, who is not getting into the Bible, and he can speak to them in other ways. Nothing I'm saying could possibly limit what he can do. But as we're going to see, he's very likely to make use of the time you spend in his word. The Holy Spirit guides us into truth. John 16 then records a further promise from Jesus of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus actually promises five times in a short period of time there. I have much more to say to you, more than you now can bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you again into the truth. What does it mean to say the disciples wouldn't be able to bear more? I don't think this is talking about their emotions. I don't think Jesus saying more is going to ruin them emotionally or spiritually. Because think about the fact that they're going to have to go through seeing their friend, their saviour, the person that uh, they've started realising is the son of God. They're going to see him arrested and executed, and their hopes, because they thought he was going to restore the entire nation of Israel, completely dashed. I think their emotions are going to get trashed. It's not for that reason that Jesus is protecting them by not speaking more at this point. No, I think this relates to the fact that the apostles, there was loads that Jesus could have said to them, but there was no point because they would not have been able to make any sense of it whatsoever. Way back in John 2, 
Jesus had cleared the temple um, courts of the animals and the money changers and had been asked for a sign to justify his actions and prove his authority. So Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, after that, then his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. You see, before they'd experienced his death and that three-day wait, that agonizing wait, and then him coming back to life and showing himself to them, those were just words. What he'd said before were just words to the apostles. They weren't actually truth to them. They couldn't interpret them correctly. They needed the experience as well as the words. But actually, even that wasn't enough. The spirit of truth is the one who guides them into all truth. It's the Holy Spirit who interprets those words, who interprets the written word of God to us, and who reveals how it actually applies to our lives. The Holy Spirit has spoken out the word of God in the Bible, but we also need the Holy Spirit to act in us when we're reading the Bible, if we're actually going to understand it, and it's going to affect us at all, and have its proper power. Um, Just a big chunk here from 1 Corinthians 2, which I think makes this point better than I could do. No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is the Spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. That's the Bible, the Word of God. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. The person without the Spirit doesn't accept what's in the Bible. It's not going to make sense to them. They're not going to believe it, but considers them foolishness instead and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. But we have the mind of Christ because we have the Spirit living in us. Back where we started in John 14... Jesus had said, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. One of the commentaries I looked at preparing for this, uh, NIV application commentary, asks of that statement, does that refer to the Spirit's work in providing us with the inspired scriptures we treasure today, or does that uh, refer to the inner illumination of the Spirit as we work within God's word, delving deeply into its meaning? It goes on to say, no doubt John would say yes to each of these. Holy Spirit is involved in lots of different ways there. Going back to John 14, we need to resist the urge to say all of those promises were given only to the apostles in the room on that day. No one really argues that at the start of that um, passage, where it says, if you love me, keep my commands... No one really argues that that only applied to the apostles. We know that's for the entire church. We know that's for us today. Later on, when it says, my peace I give you, we know that promise is for us today. All of this is for all of us. So even though there has already been a fulfillment of Jesus' promise, because the Holy Spirit has given us the complete Bible, the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, we've been promised that the Holy Spirit will teach us all things and will remind us of what Jesus has said. That can be in the wonderful work which is us just opening up 
the Bible because we can. And the Holy Spirit lifting bits of it and making it cry out to our hearts and getting us to understand it. But also, it can be that the Holy Spirit reminds us of a chunk of the Bible, of a verse from the Bible at another time. If we've regularly spent time in his words, God has got that great big storehouse of the Bible that he can use, he can bring it to mind. Again, not trying to say that God doesn't have sovereignty. He could tell you a bit of the Bible, supernaturally, that you've never read before. But if you have read it, he's likely to bring that word to mind when we need it. We're told in the Bible to desire all these different ways of hearing from God. And I just want to reject the idea that actually being prompted of a verse in the Bible is somehow less spiritual or less supernatural than getting a vision, than having a dream, than hearing a prophecy, than interpreting a tongue. They're on the same level as each other. I want to just quickly um, look at an example from Isaiah of someone who is fully empowered by the Spirit to see what the Spirit speaking to them looks like. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. That's the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. This is a prophecy regarding Jesus. So add to this idea the fact that actually the Spirit is coming on one who is God himself. Let's head to Matthew 3 and 4. Jesus is baptized. Heaven itself opens. The Holy Spirit descends visibly in the form of a dove. And God the Father speaks audibly from heaven, saying that this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And that leads on to Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness for a showdown with Satan. Um, A book I'm less proud of showing off. Um, This is not the inspired word of God. If you haven't read them before, I think these are fantastic. This is Oriel's diary, and it's a fictional account of an archangel's account of the life of Jesus. Uh, The author, Robert Harrison, has written three of them, just giving us a a way of getting into something like the word of God, just from a different angle. And as long as you remember that it's not inspired by God, this is a person's account of it, it actually teaches, taught me a lot of things. It's helped me see things a bit more clearly. In particular, he talks about the spiritual realm all the way through them as if it's somehow more real than the physical world we're used to. And of course, that is the truth. And it's so hard for us to conceive that it's been a useful reminder. Uh, In that book, it really outlines the fact that Satan launches an all-out spiritual attack on Jesus from the instant that he finds out that he's been conceived and is due to be born. He spends the first couple of years of Jesus' life trying to kill him in any way possible. And that book kind of recounts uh, the, the armies of angels and fallen angels standing off against each other, which actually was going on. That really was truth, even though it's not the sort of reality we're used to. So glad that Living Free's kind of been talking through that reality so much at the moment. Now, a bit later, at the start of Jesus' ministry, Satan launches his kind of second massive attack on Jesus. The third one will be at the cross. And almost matching God's deliberate choice of a weak baby in the first case, the Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness, into the desert on his own, 
away from any human help, and he causes him to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. There's a bit of an understatement in the word of God at this point. Jesus was hungry. I think we can probably think, he, uh, physically, he is absolutely broken. And that's before you think about the emotional cost of being isolated from the people who are going to be his closest followers. He's at a low ebb here, and his only chance is trusting in the Spirit, who luckily has just anointed him, and is fully resting on him, as we've seen in Isaiah as well as Matthew. So Satan now launches three blistering attacks on Jesus. I'm not going to read all of this. Just have a look at this I've highlighted. As Satan attacks Jesus in these three ways, trying basically to ruin God's rescue plan, what happens? First of all, Jesus says, it is written, and quotes the Bible. There's a second attack, a variation. He's going to do something different. He says, it's also written, and he quotes the Bible. A third final attack, the big one. Jesus says, for it is written. He keeps going back to the Bible. Jesus has meditated on the written word of God. In his case, the Old Testament. Full of the Holy Spirit, completely full of the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit brings to his mind is scripture. I think we're safe saying that being reminded of the words of the Bible is not a second-rate way of hearing from the Holy Spirit. I do want to bring out a couple of examples from my own life for this, just again to give that balance and the sense that we should value and we should pursue all the ways of hearing truth from the Holy Spirit possible. The first one goes back over a decade, um, and it's a really mundane example. Um, I had a situation in a previous job where I was clearly not being paid the right amount of money. I was being paid too little. I went to my manager, and they kind of just completely blew me off, said I was completely wrong. I knew I wasn't. I went and checked all the paperwork. I really wasn't. And I was aware that if I went to the Bible... Would I really get specific advice on exactly that situation? I could go and find some bits which say that I'm not meant to be after money. If you, if you treasure money more than God, then you're not interested in God at all. So does that say I'm not meant to? Then again, I could find bits that say, actually, God cares about justice and truth. And actually, I've just been lied to. I don't think the Bible tells you whether to go and be meek at that point or whether to go and be strong and full of truth. Both bits could come out of there. I went along to the equivalent of life group in that, in that church, and we happened to be doing an exercise where we prayed for each other and then waited and sought to hear from the Holy Spirit. And I can't remember who it was, someone from my previous church. I can't remember who it was. I remember their attitude. They were so embarrassed. I mean, this can't be from God, but I've got to step out in faith and say it anyway. I, I've just, I, can't, I can't say it. I just saw this massive set of teeth. I have no idea. I mean, j just forget it. It's clearly not from God. That, yeah, no, that is absolutely from God. I've got to go and have teeth. I, I know that he, I knew he had spoken. A bizarre way for him to speak, but I knew that I had to go back and say, here's the paperwork. You're wrong. You are actually underpaying me, and you're trying to hide it. And when I did that, I got so much more respect from the person that I confronted at work. It wasn't really about the money. It was about truth and justice. And he spoke through a very odd picture to somebody else. In preparing for um, the, the, what I'm saying today, 
I was very, very aware that I've got a reputation from uh, speaking before, that maybe, just maybe, I try to cram quite a lot of Bible into a Sunday morning, and that there, there is occasionally feedback which says, it's great, drowning in the word is great, but, but try and help us breathe a bit, just get a bit of anecdote, a bit, a bit of life. And St- Steve helped in this one by giving me literally four different passages from the Bible to speak on when he gave me this, this topic. Like, okay, that's a mixed message, which way am I going to go on this one? <laughs> I went, I kind of did, did my prep, I, I, I had all of the Bible references you've seen already in here, a couple more still to come, and I was thinking, this isn't really following on, this isn't in the theme of trying to just slow down and make it easily, easy for people to absorb. Am I doing completely the wrong thing here? Um, and bizarrely, I, I opened up my personal Bible reading that was away from preparing for this preach today, and it was the introduction to the book of Obadiah. Now, I've not looked at that for a long, long time, I'm going to be honest. It's kind of a glaring gap. I've not looked at this for so many years. I really need to. But I was, was thinking, I'm really struggling with a sermon. How on earth is this going to be useful? But it's my routine. I'm going to look at the Word of God for me so that God can act in me. And I opened it up, and I have no idea why. But the author of this book, just doing a gentle introduction quoted seven of the same passages of scripture. Basically, he took the introduction to be, Obadiah was a prophet giving the word of God. The word of God is truth. And I opened it, and it basically read like half of what I was planning to say. And that was a confirmation to me. That's kind of half in the word, half outside of the word. That guy was not inspired in the same way as the apostles to write infallible, inerrant truth for all, of, um, all people for all time, but actually there was something of God in there. And the last example that I wanted to share was what, uh, a word that Rachel was given about a year and a half, two years ago, before she actually got um, a diagnosis of cancer. She, she went to a worship conference, and several people gave her words, and she got a couple words herself. I can't remember where this one came from, but there were, she was given the words, the battle belongs to the Lord. And she clung to them, as I have done, all the way through. In the darkest moments, we knew, because the Bible says it, because this is an absolute truth that you cannot doubt, that the battle really does belong to the Lord. Every time we clung to kind of our human hopes and looking at the physical as being the ultimate reality and thought that actually healing is the only way God can be glorified, we were reminded the battle belongs to the Lord. He's not going to lose it. He's in control. And I wonder whether, like Jesus, when Jesus was absolutely being pushed to the edge, where Satan was really attacking him, the only way Jesus could really go was the scripture, because it's the ultimate. I wonder whether God chose to speak to us in the ultimate way possible, the one way that we can't doubt. You can doubt an impression. You can doubt a vision. You can doubt a dream. You should not doubt the written word of God. So I do wonder whether that's why we got that. I do want to go on to looking at what is the message of truth. Back in John, we've seen that trusting and obeying comes right before the promise of the Holy Spirit. But what comes straight afterwards? Having a look at this... Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaches and reminds us, and that's why we receive his peace. So what is the teaching of the Spirit that leads on to us having peace? 
The disciples have been promised peace even in the context of Jesus leaving them. Have a look at where he's going. We have peace because we are designed for heaven. It's our destination and it's our destiny. It's so much easier having peace when you know the ending. When I was at university, our student pastor used to have a favourite saying. He'd hold up the word of God and he'd say, I've read to the end of the book, and do you know what? The lamb wins. Of course, Thomas, speaking for the other disciples, admits he doesn't know the way, leading to Jesus' statements that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that in him the Father is revealed. The Father, who was previously hidden has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The way to God, the way to have eternal life, which was previously hidden, is revealed to be through Christ. His plan, his rescue plan, which was hidden as well, is also revealed and it's confirmed to be true. Paul describes God's plan, which people previously hadn't understood, but which is now out in the open and explained to us. He describes it as a mystery, For instance, here at the start of Ephesians, and he links it to the wisdom and the truth of God. I'm not going to read out this whole passage. I'm going to go through and kind of teach through it, essentially, highlighting different bits as I go. Feel free to read the whole lot if that helps you more. You see, the truth that the Spirit leads us into, that the truth guides us into, the teaching of Jesus, which he reminds us of, is essentially just the gospel. The good news about Christ. It is that simple. Is that it? Yes, it is. In this memorable passage, Paul outlines the gospel as follows. We have a tremendous spiritual blessing. Not a material blessing, not a blessing just for this life, but an all-encompassing spiritual blessing. And it's specifically this. It's that God chose us. The initiative was his. It didn't rely on us at all. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The choice he's made is not changing. The offer is not being withdrawn. It does not rely on what we do today when we get something wrong. And when he chose us, it was to be holy and blameless in his sight. If you're not feeling that way at the moment, if you don't feel holy and blameless, then please remember that God's word is what defines what is true. Our subjective feelings, which vary massively depending on your mood, depending on your most recent experience, not the sum of you, just what happened most recently, depending massively on your hunger levels, your tiredness, your blood sugar levels, on other chemical balances within your body, That does not define truth. How you are feeling does not define what true is. There is one standard of truth God's given us, which the spirit of truth has breathed out, and it's the written word of God, which we should use to weigh up everything else. All those other feelings, experiences, messages, impressions. If God says that we are blameless, then we are. It's a really interesting phrase what comes straight afterwards, in his sight, as well as confirming that God's viewpoint is the only point of view which actually matters. It actually suggests that there's a specific reason that God sees us as homely and blameless. It's going to be linked to the fact that we are adopted 
by God to be his children in an act of grace. Grace is when God acts towards us in love and mercy, even though we deserve the exact opposite. So God can adopt us as his children. He can see us as holy and blameless, even though that's not what we deserve. How? Because we are redeemed by his blood. And that means our sins have been forgiven so that we are now holy and blameless. Just after our main passage in John 14, Jesus is wrongly judged by the world as guilty and is executed for crimes that he did not commit. We had blame. We weren't holy. We didn't deserve God's love and mercy, but in his grace, he chose us. And when he prompted us to repentance by the work of the Holy Spirit, showing us truth, he forgave those sins utterly so that God sees us as blameless and adopts us into his family. Because he is just, as well as merciful, our guilt was transferred and the punishment we deserved was paid when Jesus, the sinless saviour, died in our place. This much grace. No wonder Paul uses words like richness and lavished. There's even more to come, though. Paul describes this open secret, this mystery, which is yet to play out in our futures. There is a time coming when God will bring everything on earth and in the heavens together in unity. There is a time coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a time coming when one way or another all will be judged. Those he has chosen... Those who have willingly bent the knee in this life have nothing to fear from the judgment of a God who has taken their sin on himself and died to pay the redemption price for them and who consequently sees them as holy and blameless. This lack of fear, this peace, is confirmed by the spirit of truth. He began dwelling in us when we heard the gospel and believed it and were saved. He's a deposit, a guarantee. He will remain in us and we in him all the way through to that time of final redemption when we will see him face to face. And that security only serves to increase our peace. The only response to that is worship. And actually Paul's words here, this is a passage of utter worship language. Finally, As mentioned before, in John's Gospel, we hear that Jesus repeatedly promises the Holy Spirit with slightly different nuances each time. We've looked at two bits of John 14 and John 16 now. Let's go to John 15. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning." We've already seen that this spirit of truth reveals to us the truth about God's holiness, the truth about our own righteousness, and so convicts us or convinces us of our need for Christ and draws us to repentance by his testimony. One of the consequences of the apostles receiving the Holy Spirit was that they had to testify. But remember that being with Jesus from the beginning wasn't enough. The Holy Spirit had to remind them and had to illuminate his words so they could understand it. We stand in the light of that perfect revelation. 
We have the same spirit of truth living in us as a deposit, a guarantee, illuminating, revealing his word to us. So we now are also called to testify to him and witness to the world. Right now, the Spirit is calling and testifying to those that he is calling to himself. He's preparing people's hearts in the world at this very minute. He's beginning to convict people of their sinfulness and their need for a saviour. He's prompting them to cry out that they need to be loved, just like the Father loves Before we testify to anyone, if God hasn't done that, if the Holy Spirit hasn't been working them, there's going to be no power in our words. Now, that is not a reason not to testify. It's just a reminder of our total dependence on the Spirit and a rejection to doing anything in our own strength. On this theme, it's been said, the Holy Spirit is testifying first as the senior partner to the church. If the Spirit moves someone to repentance then even our most imperfect spoken testimony will be words with power. As in Acts, the Holy Spirit's work in convicting will cut people to the heart. The word testify there is interesting. It might suggest a legal process. Perhaps that's linked to the Holy Spirit and the fact that he convicts us of guilt. But maybe it refers to the fact that we're also promised that we will face being dragged in front of the authorities, put on trial like our saviour was. And we're promised that when that happens, guess what? The Holy Spirit will give us the words we need. And those are not just words of defence. They are words that turn the tables and they make the case for Christ. Just in summary, we've seen that the Holy Spirit, promised by Jesus to his followers... Is described as the spirit of truth. That what he speaks defines what is truth. And that he's spoken through people, through history, giving us the Bible, the written word of God. We know that even when people read the Bible, it's only by the spirit working inside them that understanding will come. We've seen the Holy Spirit speaks today in many different ways. Words, pictures, impressions, and last in this list, but definitely not least, by reminding us of the word of God. And we've seen that all of this brings us peace because the word of God reveals God's rescue plan designed to save us. Jesus, the incarnate word of God, dying for us so that we're holy and blameless in his sight. This good news should call us to worship. Just as relating it drove Paul to that passage of worship to God. But it should also move us to tell others that same good news to testify with both our words and our actions, praying that the Spirit would testify to people's hearts, making them ready to respond. I think there's a couple of definite applications in there, things we need to do. We do need to come back to worship. One thing that God's laid on my heart has come up a couple of times in this, and that's the fact that there may be people here today who don't feel holy and blameless, who don't feel like they're chosen by God. Specifically, if actually the fact that you haven't been given the gift of prophecy or you you don't feel you hear from God in a particularly supernatural way is making you doubt your salvation, making you doubt that God loves you, I would really, really love to pray with you today. There may be other people that Steve or Rob feels might be called as well.